I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you all a happy 2019. <laughs> We're almost there, according to our particular retreat, which is a little arbitrary, I know, but um, it generally is. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? A sort of relatively random point determined in a cyclic process. Perhaps if it began at the winter solstice, it would make a little sense from a solar sort of cycle point of view. Or maybe there's something else more important. I'm not quite sure what. I suspect it started off connected to that, but I don't know. We can acknowledge sometimes forms and things like a calendar year is a little bit sort of made up. And yet, at the same time, there's a significance to that sense of a cyclic movement that we find ourselves coming back again and again to a point where we perhaps give or invite or allow or imbue some significance, some meaning, some also purpose or functionality and in our culture and in many cultures, there's a, a recognition. And actually, when I say our culture, I, I actually don't necessarily know what I mean by that because there are many cultures that I might be calling our culture. Maybe I should say my culture, but um, cultures. <laughs> cultures, including Buddhist cultures, um, find a value in just marking a point where we stop and look back and go, hmm. And we also pause and look forward and go, also perhaps, hmm. But there's a, there's a particular quality, I think, that's invited at this point in the cycle that because it makes more sense in terms of the retreat journey, we have in recent years begun to do it at this end of the retreat point, which in many ways seems to make sense because tomorrow you will be going out into your lives in the form they take outside of retreat and uh, engaging with the world. And, uh, and so this will be the beginning of the new year of that. And this point of just stopping and looking back and perhaps reflecting, considering, you know, what have we learned? What have we understood? What have we seen? What have we become aware of in, in the time since we last did this? And equally considering, well, in moving forward, what feels important? What do I want to orient towards? What do I want to bring forth? What do I want to take care of? And this, this sense of both learning from our experience that's gone before and orienting towards what is yet to come with a sense of what's possible here. What can we bring forth, we could say. This is, I think, something important for us, something powerful and that I certainly enjoy to have an opportunity to do that as we will this evening in a, in a ceremonial way. And simple, but I think for me it's always felt quite significant. And uh, 
There have been a number of times when some of the intentions made here have borne fruit in my life that I've seen very clearly as wholesome or beneficial shifts. And I, as I was contemplating what I was going to speak about this evening, I came to a point about 45 minutes ago where I realized that my mind wasn't really seeming to work in a very linear manner anymore. And usually it does. So it was a little disconcerting. And when I went and talked to my colleagues and said, hey, can we just talk about what we're going to do? And shifted out of the sense of what am I going to do into what are we going to do? Um, and the, the beneficial process that followed, Catherine reflected back to me, you know, it was a, two or three years ago when you made that intention here to ask for help. This might be one of the moments in which it's happening. <laughs> and it was kind of touching to think, oh, well, that's nice. It's actually come back right to the place from which it emerged to invite me to ask for some help. And so I, there's a few things I wanted to speak about, and I don't want to speak for too long. But there's something for me about just the sense of looking back on the last year and in my personal life there have been some major things that have been discovered for me. And I pause at that point because I'm really not quite sure whether or to what degree to go into naming that. I've learned something very powerful and profound, it seems, and I think I'm still learning it about what it means to really connect with the, the truth of what's gone before, which in my family's case has included some difficult experience, and that's probably the case for all of our families in different ways and forms. And yet to turn towards and see what what might be there that's not easy for us to look at, to inhabit, to touch, to make contact with, is also to come into relationship with a kind of a wholeness that emerges when we're willing to include that which is difficult and challenging. And that's a, a theme and a thread that we see in our practice, I think, again and again. As we open to what's difficult, we actually find that the, the possibility of connecting and the the sense of inclusion that that brings, even though not easy, actually has a deeper power to it and starts to access some degree of resource that we might not have imagined was possible. And uh, in my case, this involved returning to the, the place of my father's birth. And I was going, in a sense, because I got invited to teach a retreat there, so it got me there. Although when I received the retreat, invitation, I would have said no because my schedule was full, except that's where my father comes from, Romania, where he was born. And where his family, as a Romanian Jewish family, was um, sent in 1941 from where they lived to a concentration camp. And it was an interesting and challenging and yet strangely compelling situation to put myself in, to say, oh, actually, I think it's maybe good that this invitation has come, that I go back there, because nothing and no one of my family has since that time. And it was 
always that I grew up with a sort of a story of what happened and the remarkable survival story of my father as an infant, three-year-old, and his parents. And I had this opportunity to go, and there's a lot I could say about it, um, which I won't go into in detail, but to go back into that situation and see what was there for me. And in fact, not just for me, it turns out, but for my, my whole family and lineage, really, I found quite unexpectedly, as well as the encounter with something truly tragic and horrific that had taken place, and the, the fact that there was almost no one of that Jewish community left in that country and that the town from where my father's family came from and had lived for many generations. I found myself in contact with degrees of distress, of grief, of fear, of horror, in fact, to go into that territory. And I understood why it was my father and his parents had never gone back there, despite it being relatively easy to do, certainly since the fall of the, the um, sort of the... the the Iron Curtain, the, that, that whole um, 30 years ago or so now, that um, the communist world opened up somewhat. And I also found there something I completely didn't, because I kind of anticipated I would find that first piece of what was quite hard to find and to me. I also found there something of a sense of somewhere that I came from that I never imagined I could have believed or felt that I come from this place, even though only one half of my family does. And, and that the presence of, of my ancestors, and specifically my great-grandmother's gravestone, and her presence there, it seemed to me, that recognized me when I turned up there, was something inexplicable and profound that I just, I can, and I'm sorry to just speak a little of this, but there was something that happened for me there that is, I think, very relevant to a lot of what we do and what I also want to say a little more about in a moment, which is that by turning towards or having the willingness, and to be honest, when it came down to it, if I hadn't signed up to teach this retreat, I probably wouldn't have gone. The nice idea to go to Romania became... Actually, I'm not sure I want to go there because I know what happened there. And, um, but I did. And I came away having somehow discovered that what had always been what happened to my father and his family was what happened to my family. And suddenly I was part of it. And that involved me having to feel what that was as if it just happened. That was not an easy thing. And was, is, it's not a finished article. As if it just happened, because in some ways, by my having connected to it, in terms of my system, it had only just happened. But what also happened was I actually found a connection to place and to people and to ancestors that I had never had and, and not ever quite known I was missing, because one doesn't. And the sense for me of the that willingness to turn towards that which is perhaps difficult or most difficult as the foundation for actually rediscovering, rediscovering our connection. 
And not just our connection, but our resource. In the land, in the people, in the place. This looking back in that sense for me was looking back a long way. But it also actually involved a looking forward because in somehow meeting that, one thing I notice is my own sense of fear of survival or not surviving has changed. It's just as likely as it was before <coughs> I went there that I will die, which is, you know, highly likely. In fact, <laughs> I think I heard someone recently saying it's guaranteed. But the fear in relationship to that seems to have changed. In practice, we're often called and asked to turn towards what is difficult. We start to discover that in our willingness to do so and to find resources and support in that process, something more can come forth from us. Because when we turn away from what is difficult, we lose our contact and our connection to the deeper dimension of our life that is woven together with what is difficult. It seems to me that our unwillingness socially, culturally, and sometimes collectively to look carefully at what is grievous, what is painful, what is distressing, is something that feeds and exacerbates our disconnect and the desperate searching for meaning and fulfillment in things which don't provide it. So when I look back at this year, I look back at this learning of my own and the, the way arriving in a strange town in a strange country, not speaking the language, I completely just had to keep asking for help and asking for help and asking for help. So I've been practicing that one. But that what I noticed also is the people who got to offer me help were really grateful for the opportunity. Young Romanian folk who've learnt to speak English in the last 30 years, they all do, it seems, were really happy, feeling their loss at the loss of the Jewish community from their town, though they weren't from that community. But they felt the loss. They spoke to me of it, the loss that they had experienced in the loss of that community. And it's like the the injury that happens to us as human beings and cultures and communities through blindness, through fear, through the things that take place in our world. And so if I look back at this year for myself, I also see that in terms of what have we learned, I'm profoundly affected by the, and we've referred to it a little already, but the, in a way the reports and the information that has been coming for quite some years now, in fact decades, but is crystallizing into a clearer picture of the circumstance of our ecology, our living planet. And that it's not easy for us to turn towards what we hear if we listen to the report of the 
Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as commissioned by the United Nations reporting just a few months ago that really we have 12 years to address the craziness of consumer materialism driven exploitation, extraction and kind of consumption that's destabilizing our climate and our ecology. We don't have so long. But to turn towards it is not easy to actually hear that. In a sense, it's a... And, and, and followed quite soon after that report, and again, I think we referred to this earlier, the report of um, the World Wildlife Fund and um, speaking to the... Uh, the degradation and devastation of ecological systems and species taking place now and continuing at a tragic and accelerating rate such that we see that our environment may not sustain that much longer in a way that supports life as we know it or some of the living systems at least, potentially including our own. It's not out of the question that of the many species that don't survive what may be coming, we may be included. And how can we make sense? How can we turn to that? It's beyond what we can turn to, and yet we're asked to stop and listen. And seeing that the the issues of of oppression, of exploitation, of discrimination the issues of social justice and the issues in relationship to those who have not been fully seen, allowed and honoured in our communities, in our world for their particularities, their difference, their heritage, their, their sense of who they are, that these are connected with a, with a profound destructive tendency that emerges from simple human patternings seeking well-being and happiness but not knowing how to do so skillfully. And that we might feel in that that we, we want to respond, we want to do something. We might not know how. We might sometimes feel the degree of force, of pressure, of compulsion. is beyond what we can handle. And what I want to say is that if we're willing to turn towards what we hear and what we know, I think we'll find the responses come. We can't know what the outcomes will be. That's the nature of practice in all situations. We don't know about outcomes we never can. But directions we can establish, intentions we can establish, and dedication to what we care about, we can establish at the center of our life and then see what's possible.
Catherine and myself and other friends in recent months found ourselves moved to begin to engage in a, in a movement that is calling for civil disobedience in response to the inaction of governments and institutions to actually call for change in a voice that's louder than simply protest or petition or verbalized demand, but to actually say, we cannot sit still and be quiet unless what is seen and what is here is addressed, unless we as a human community make it a priority. And inspired by the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King and his nobility and his wisdom, by the Indian independence movement seeking emancipation from the British colonial rule in India, Mahatma Gandhi, and the, the spiritual leadership those remarkable people offered. We need to be that, I think, together as individuals, collectively also, leaders of our own life at least, and maybe more than that. Nonviolent, committed to non-harming, but also to saying no to what is destructive and harmful. In one sense, when we talk about what do we want to bring into this world and bring forth, the capacity to care for life is central, primary. And the ways that might happen are manifold. There isn't a model for what needs to happen beyond that we listen to our hearts and we say, what can I do here? Let me do that. What might be possible here? Let us talk and consider. It was striking for me the moment when I noticed in my heart that I was actually willing to take a risk with my ability to come here. I love this retreat. I really appreciate to come here every year, as I have for many years now, and teach. And I knew when I made a certain decision to engage in the action that, in my case, involved being arrested, that I was risking the visa that allows me to come here and do this. It's still at risk, technically. But I think it's a risk worth taking. That sometimes we have to take risks with our life for what we love. And that there's a, there's a kind of a wholeness in that that comes. Not much of a risk for someone of my particular privilege and status. Even imprisonment actually would be a relatively minimal hardship in my circumstance. I'm fortunate in that regard. But I was struck and surprised to feel that this is what my practice and my dharma asked of me. It's not what I expected to find arising. But as it did, it was like, oh, I need to say yes to this. And for me, I think a lot of the sense of practice is that place where we say yes to what our heart asks of us. Though it's not always easy. In fact, it's always inconvenient 
the particular month of action and that I wished to join was while I was teaching a month-long retreat. And it was like, couldn't we have organized it for a different time? Um, but no. And there was a point where I suddenly thought, oh, of course, it's always going to be inconvenient. It usually is for us. But some things will be more than inconvenient. There is a remarkable power in the willingness to stand up and speak what we care for and say no to what we find unacceptable, harmful, dangerous or destructive. And I believe in the transformative capacity of us individually and collectively. While there are no guarantees as to outcomes, I feel confident in that. Even if outcomes do not go as we wish, the transformation that comes from aligning ourselves with our sense of what we care about, what we love, what we believe in, is profoundly healing, even in the midst of what may become profoundly difficult. As Martin Luther King said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. So when we speak of bringing forth what is wholesome and positive, of course, in terms of our own journey, our own life, our own well-being, but embedded in a larger context of the life that we are part of. When we speak about letting go, relinquishing, releasing that which leads to harm and what is unwholesome, not supportive of well-being, then of course, yes, in the context of our life and our particular circumstance, but also in the context of our world in which our willingness to do that is, is called for, I think, strongly and in a way that is both challenging but in another way also kind of simple. It's like, oh yes, when we let it in. When we turn towards, when we open to the connection that comes from including what is hard to hear and hard to see and hard to feel. When we start to trust that we can hold that, then in that and from that connection, what is possible what is possible for us is immense, is beautiful, and is uplifting, even in the midst of what may be challenging and difficult. And the stories of human adversity from all times and in all circumstances have reliably again and again shown that even in the most difficult of conditions, there have been those people who could stay with their heart open that could take care of what was needed to be cared for, and that found a way 
not necessarily always even to survive, but to keep the light of the human spirit alive and at the center of what's happening. And the, to me, the I don't want to say the deeper urgency, but the the deeper dimension of the urgency we face is is addressing the spiritual crisis of what it is that we really want to give our lives to as human beings. Not just us and here, but as a, as a species, as a collective part of a vast matrix and network of conscious living systems. We can no longer pretend that there's somewhere else. There isn't somewhere else. Anything we've put somewhere else eventually comes back. We're getting that collectively. There isn't someone else. Anywhere we place that perspective, it eventually comes back to our own disconnection and alienation. Only by holding the pain and distress of this can we find our way through it and perhaps beyond it, it seems to me. And practice asks us to remember where we can find our ground, even in the midst of what may feel beyond being able to be grounded. The fundamental orientations of our precepts, our intention to refrain so far as we can from causing harm, our orientation towards the resources of Buddha, of the wakeful and awakening potential within us and all, not just human beings, but all of life. The Dharma and the principles and patternings that reveal how things come to be. How suffering is born and is released. How transformation is constrained or is facilitated. And the Sangha, the sense of community of those engaged in the path of waking up, but equally those, that sense of larger Sangha that we might say is our connectedness, as the basic principle of Sangha is connectedness and our shared existence. There are profound resources for us in this that it's so important we connect with, we find our way to, we allow ourselves to be touched by. And that in that and from and through that, the loving heart of metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, those qualities of kind friendliness, of compassion and care, that, and, and in compassion, the courageous, protective capacity to stand in front of what might cause harm and say no to this, even with one's very body. 
and mudita, that the capacity to see and appreciate what is also beautiful, which is also precious, delightful and uplifted in this very world and life, even with all that is so challenging. There is so much goodness, so many people engaged to seek and bring about transformation, to heal the wounds and the pain and the blindnesses of our human heart, our human culture, and our sacred ecology. There is so much we can honor and celebrate, be nourished by. And that quality also, upeka, equanimity, that place of stability that knows we are not in control of outcomes, that there is a lawfulness in the way things play out, but that if we align ourselves with the intentions of wholesomeness to bring forth that which contributes to well-being and to let go of that, to release so far as we can that which leads to harm and suffering. That that orientation is the basis for moving forward in life, which allows us to find peace in the midst of whatever comes. I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen when I sat down here. In a sense, some part of me isn't quite sure what happened either. (laughs) It's often like that, I think, in life. And so I think I'm going to trust the sense of it coming quiet that seems to be happening rather than adding too much more to that. But I want to thank you for your practice here in this moment and in being here and for the many courageous ways I've seen and heard and been present with you as you have turned towards what is not easy to turn towards and as you have turned towards what is beautiful to behold and as you have found in yourselves the way to move forward within that, through that. And for this new year that we enter into, I just really want to extend to you my blessings. And my wish that this year be a blessed year for each of you, for all of us, and for our world, and all that lives within it. Thank you for your practice your attention. Shall we sit quietly for a moment and then Catherine will take us from there.
Thank you, Yana. So now we have a chance to be in ceremony together to um, bring our bodies and our hearts and our minds to work with our pieces of paper of our intentions to bring forth and our intentions to release. And I want to say a little tiny bit about the possibility of ceremony. Um, We can make of this what we want to make of it. But in its best case, a ceremony is a place where through our attention, and through the ways we decide to engage with our paper and the little rituals that will go with it, attention and intention, and our intentions on our yellow and mauve paper, they can be um, potentized and magnified by our individual collective intention and our joining of our simple act in community, with our bodies, and rooted to the earth and the sky, to all that is more than me, that we wish to serve, to know, to move into. (coughs) So as you participate in this tonight, if you like, Let this become an image for you that can carry your yellow piece of paper, your golden piece of paper, with you throughout the year so it doesn't only just look through that lens of, oh, it's a piece of paper with a good idea I had once, right? That it's actually given, um, its, its substance is allowed to transform into something that through ceremony has become potentized and imbued with attention and intention. So this is what we can do together. We could say that the ceremony is therefore powerfully pragmatic, if we like to look at it that way. It really does help. So that my yellow pieces of paper at home now, I can't discard them. I can't do that. I see the words that are written on them. I've made a commitment. I've... Um, I've said that before my community, even if I was silent, we all bore witness together to these yellow pieces of paper, and so it's, it has a place in my life. Ceremony is, we could say, a stirring, a deliberate stirring of emotion and spirit on behalf of whatever it is our life is in the service of. So we're deliberate in this way. We will chant, we will move together, we will have ritual. The um, ceremony can be, yes, it can be absolutely of our intention and we do well to root it in this place, this place where you've been for nine days cultivating so much. And if, as we go out, you remember at any times the rocks and the land and all the humans and more than humans who at any time 
have gone out on a cold winter's night into the night sky with a prayer in their heart and a wish for themselves, their loved ones and their world. Join with all of us, past, present and future, who come with a sincere heart and wish to root and seed that in this time and this place and this era. So let and bring your imagination tonight. Bring your bright mind, bring your loving heart and its best, in its, at its best. Bring your body, your love, your uh, energetics, your fleshiness, bring your instinct and line that up with what it is that you wish to dedicate yourself to. Because today's a good day to know that. Sometimes after a retreat, the brambles can go, grow back over the openings that we've had. And to, to take care of those, we do well to make a place for them tonight, a niche here where together we potentize and magnify our own intention. So here's the plan, and then I will invite Akinchino to open the space. Yes. So the plan is that um, Akinchino will open the space. <laughs> and we, Yana and I have requested, and some of you may know, Akinchino was a, a monk for 20 something years of, um, from the Thai forest tradition. Uh, really beautiful and um, profoundly, for me, the image of that order is ones who are really willing to live with little. The renunciation and release is uh, very inspiring to me. And we, will in, we have asked that he opens the space with the Metakaraniya Sutta, as he would have chanted in the monastery uh, very, very often. And this Sutta, this sutta is a poem, apparently, comes first as a poem in the Sutta Nipata, where the relationship between metta and mindfulness is nowhere as clear as it is there. Right? So our work of mindfulness and that cultivation of the Brahma-viharas, he will open the space with this tradition that we are fortunate to partake of. So allow that root right in the Buddhist tradition, deep 2,600 years, with all who've sincerely practiced to be awake. Then we will chant together, um, if you wish. Um, I might teach us this one first so that then we can go straight into it. A chant, a compassion chant, with Ommane Padme Hung, but this melody is one that has more of a rhythm of activity, it has more, the one we did the other day is very beautiful and tender aspect, and this is more the kind of belly aspect, the action, the getting into action with compassion. Has a, uh, I'll teach you that in a moment. Um, we will chant that, and once we've got it going and we're well with that chant, we will leave the room here and with the chant, see if you can carry it and carry the sound and listen to the others. Um, get your coat, get your shoes if you wish to come outside with us. And I have an option for those who may not wish. OK, 
okay? So I'll tell you this option first. Get your coats and shoes, and we will meet outside um, in that, down the front steps, around that area where that brick wall is to that garden that drops. And there you might see a special spot, <laughs> all being well, <laughs> that my two altar boys will be... <laughs> <laughs> will be standing beside and, and, and guarding and holding. Um, so we will stand outside there and we will gather around that spot and that will be a spot <coughs> where there will be a, a place which I... Will I say what it will be? Yes. Mm. Yeah. There will be um, a receptacle that has been made uh, maybe with a fire inside it um, all being well. Yes. Mm, yeah, we have done this before. It's um, and we will chant. Is it funny? And don't try this at home. Don't try this. <laughs> yeah, don't try this at home. A ceremony like this needs nine days of mindfulness. Um, and we will stop. We'll chant together and we'll stay and we'll stop. And I invite you at that point to really make it imbue this with the magnification of all the depth and breadth of you that you can bring to the table right there. Feet in the earth, remembering <coughs> if you wish to pay homage to the original peoples of this land, the Nipmuc peoples, and all who have lived and worked through this place. Right through to the rocks and the elements, the sky above, let yourself stand in a way that lets you engage this meaningfully, right? However that is. We will ring the bell, and then we will invite you to bring your, um, the, the one you wish to let go of into and place into the fire. Okay? And we will have, um, I'll invite us into another chant at that point, probably the Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka. When everyone has had a chance to place the, the one of for release in the fire, then we come, we stand around, we wait till everyone has completed. We bear witness to each other as part of the magnification and potentizing. And when we're complete, we pause. We will ring a bell. We will come, we will return inside, and we will end the evening chanting the refuges and the precepts as a way to orient to the new year. Okay, so I think I will teach you this chant and then I'll invite, then, then we will open the space. Okay. Maybe I don't need to teach you on the spot. Teach you on the spot. Very good. Thank you. Very good. Good idea. All right. So please find your seat and please. Yeah, with a child, I'm just going to... And allow, just before I invite the Kinshino, allow yourself to make an intention for this ceremony. Breathing out, rooting, 
deep into the earth, allowing the earth to breathe up through you, right through the midline to the sky, and opening your heart, even whatever it's like right now, all around and everywhere, so that our prayers and intentions may go in all directions. The north, the south, the west, the east, above and below, of times past, of times present, of times future. Karaniya mata kusalena yantang zantang badang abhisamek chasako ujjujasu ujjujasu vajojasamuddu anatimani sandusako jasu barojapakidjo chasallahu kavuti santindriyo janipako japagabo gullesu anannu gito anadja Kudang samajare kinjiyena vinyu Pare upavade yung zukinova Keminova sabesa tabawandu sukitata ye kejipana buta titasawa Tawarawa anavasesa digava ye mahantava majimara saka Anukatu la dindava ye ja dindha ye ja dure vasandhi avidure bhutava sambhave siva sabe sata bhavandu sukitata naparo parangni kube tanati manye takadachinang gindibayaro sanapatiga sanya nanya manya saduka Mijaya matayataniyang putang ayusae kaputamanurake vampisababute sumana sambhavaye aparimanang metanjasabalokasamingmana sambhavaye aparimanang udang adojatiryanja sambhadang averang Sapatang ti tanjarang Nisinova sayanova yavata savigatamido etang satingadi taya brahmametang viharang Itamahu di tinjanupagamma silava dasanena sampano kame suvineya gedang Nahijatu kamba seyang bunare So this chant, once we get it 
can be sung as a round, can be sung in fifths. We can generate this energy of this act of compassion. And for anyone who does not, is not able or ca- cannot go outside for any reason, you can bring your purple slip to us here and we will place it in the fire for you. Okay. So let's really weave this. It mimics the Tibetan prayer wheel that just keeps turning this prayer for all beings. Om Mani Padme Hum 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 Om Mani Padme And let the earth sing through you. Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme Hum. Anyone who can do fifths? Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme Hum. 
That's right. Amani Padme Hum. Amani Padme Hum. Amani Padme.